0: We read the Holy Scriptures together back in Genesis chapter 1 again. We'll begin reading at verse 20. As we continue our series through the first chapters of Genesis entitled In the Beginning, come to our fifth sermon this afternoon. So we begin reading at verse 20 and read through chapter 2, verse 3. I just take the opportunity to mention that the sequence of the days actually ends in chapter 2, verse 3. So that was originally part of the first chapter and probably should have been included in the first chapter of the book. Be that as it may, let's begin reading at chapter 1, verse 20. And God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales, and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind, and every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to every thing that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work which God created and made. We read that far. The text for the sermon is verses 20 through 25. (coughs) Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God is surely on display In the creation of the world, God made each creature at a certain time, in a certain place, and with a certain relationship to all the other creatures. And thus, in this way, He created a vast, complex, ordered, and beautiful universe in six days. We have seen that in the very beginning God brought forth the entire cosmos, but in a state without form and void. The earth was formless, it was shapeless, it was in a chaotic state, and it was void of any living creatures. Then God proceeded to call forth light out of the darkness. Then on the second day he created a firmament, dividing the waters below from the waters above. And then on the third day he shaped land, dry land, out of the waters, and he caused the land to be clothed in a beautiful covering of lush green grass, herbs, trees, bearing fruit, seeds, nuts, and berries. He had prepared a beautiful world, and he was about to bring life into that world, that is, a higher order of life. But before God did that, on the fourth day He turned his attention to the vast universe around the earth. We already considered that in our previous sermon. How God gathered the light that he created on the first day. He collected it into the sun, the moon, and the stars. So that these became the light bearers. And these became the creatures that would, from thenceforth, shine that light. And would be the sources of that light until the end of time. So God turned his attention to the vast reaches of space, and he called into being the galaxies, the nebulae, the star dust and star clouds, vast the space, the stretches of the stretch of the space around us. He filled it with all kinds of beautiful creatures which immediately were shining their light on the earth. But then God turned his attention back to the earth. And that's what we're going to consider this afternoon. On the fifth and sixth days, God proceeded to fill the earth with a higher order of living creatures, which we call animals. And he did that before his crowning achievement that he did later on the sixth day, as we will, Lord willing, see next time. Today we're going to consider then the creation of the animals, and I have to say that I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have a fondness for animals. We probably gained that when we were little children. We loved to look at books and watch videos and see pictures of the vast variety of the animals that live on this earth, and I think as we became adults that didn't change very much, but we continued continued to take delight and be amazed at the vast variety and complexity of the animal kingdom. Especially this time of year, we enjoy seeing the robins come back, and the woodpeckers, the blue jays, in our yards, the black, white, and gray squirrels running around on the wires up above and in the trees. We also like to see pictures of fantastic schools of fish swarming in the seas and a majestic pride of lions on the savanna, or the scary python slithering through the jungle, and we stand in amazement at the creatures of the world. One of the greatest mysteries we saw last time was how did life begin? The modern man has his explanation for that. But another question is how did All of the species of animals that we see in the world today come into being. How did they get here? Almost the whole world has followed after Charles Darwin, who wrote a book in the 19th century called On the Origin of Species, in which he tried to explain how all of these different species of animals came into existence. Even many, many people in the Christian church world have followed after the ideas of Darwin. But we still hold to God's revelation as we find it in our text in very simple and clear language. God created the animals on the fifth and sixth days. So I call your attention to the text under the theme, In the Beginning, God's Creation of Animal Life, Let's look more closely at the origin of animals. Secondly, God's law that they will reproduce after their kind. And then thirdly, God's perfect plan for these animals. So we turn our attention now to the text, verse 20, and there we read, God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly. And then in verse 24, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. I want to point out, first of all, that there is a correspondence between the days of creation. We've already seen, that the first day of creation corresponds to the fourth day. On the first day, God created light. But on the fourth day, he gathered that light into the sun and the stars and caused it to shine from those sources. It's a correspondence. So also on the second day, God created the firmament or an expanse to separate the waters below and the waters above. Second day. On the fifth day, God created the creatures that would live in the waters below and that would fly in the open firmament that he made on the second day. On the third day, God caused the dry land to rise up out of the waters, and he filled it with lush green grass, trees, and herbs. On the sixth day, God created the creatures that would live on the land and would eat those plants. We see there the orderly method that God used to create all of these creatures, In six literal days, there is wisdom in all the works of God. So what about the fifth day of creation? That was the day when animal life first appeared in the whole creation. There were no animals before the fifth day. But on the fifth day, if we were there, we would have seen something most amazing and extraordinary. If we had been there we would have suddenly seen that the ocean of waters surrounding the earth suddenly was swarming with all kinds of living creatures, moving creatures that had life. That's what the text says in verse 20. Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life. Or, a more literal translation of the Hebrew, God said, literally, Let the waters swarm with swarming living things. God wanted there to be swarms of living things in that first ocean. You would have suddenly seen spring into existence in the waters thousands and thousands of brightly colored schools of fish, fully mature, fully grown, with scales and fins and tails and all of the apparatus that a fish fully grown needs in order to swim through the water you would have suddenly seen swarms of other creatures not of the same type as the fish but mammals and other sea creatures suddenly spring into existence swarms of them slithering eels meandering crabs joyful dolphins leaping out of the water giant blue whales slowly gliding through the sea great powerful sharks dashing about And all the other creatures of the ocean, suddenly, or perhaps a little bit gradually, but within one day, sprang into existence from the waters, in the waters, and swarmed about. When the text says in verse 21, God created great whales, the original Hebrew doesn't specify whales, but the word there can refer to any gigantic sea creature of any kind, including kinds that might not even exist anymore because of extinction. It could be that God created there dinosaurs that lived in the waters and what the scriptures elsewhere call the great Leviathan, which we find in the book of Job and the Psalms. What was that Leviathan? This great sea creature that is mentioned in the scriptures. God made great sea creatures. On day five, on that same day, God created the animals that fly in the open firmament of the heaven. When the text says there that he brought forth the birds, verse 20, that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven, again, the literal translation is more like this. He created the birds that may fly above the earth upon the face of the expanse of the heavens. That's the idea of the Hebrew. They would fly upon the face of the expanse of the heavens. And that expanse is what he created on day two that firmament, that expanse that would separate the waters below and the waters above. Now, on that day, if you were there looking up, you would see nothing but bright blue sky, no clouds whatsoever, and no, no birds either. But suddenly you would have seen thousands of birds pop into existence, flying against the background of that bright blue sky, the open firmament, the face of the expanse of the heavens above. You would have seen the many flocks of birds that God created, we don't know exactly which kinds he made in the beginning, but the kinds that exist today are descended from those kinds. He made thousands of different birds of different shapes and sizes and colors and patterns, and they flew together in their flocks, or the solitary birds like the eagles and hawks glided and sped through the air. The Bible speaks of sparrows and swallows, eagles, vultures, owls, storks. Herons, ravens, doves, and other birds as well. God brought forth these birds. He didn't create eggs on day five, but He created fully grown birds that had feathers and wings and beaks and legs, just like the birds we see today. And by the way, the bird is the only animal in the world, even scientists will tell you, the only animal that has feathers. And as we'll see, that is important to remember. That was what God created on the fifth day. On the sixth day, after the evening and the morning of the fifth day were complete, on the sixth day, God turned his attention to the earth, the land, where those lush green plants had sprung up on day three. God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature, After his kind. Cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. How amazing would that have been to be standing on the earth at that moment, surrounded by lush forests and green grass, and suddenly you see rising up out of the earth, either fully formed already or gradually coming together, animals of all different kinds, shapes, and sizes, Fully grown, fully mature, living, breathing creatures. Again, no eggs, but fully mature adult animals with full bodies. Mouths, ears, legs, hair, fur, scales, and whatever else God determined for them to have. These animals God did not create out of nothing, but he created out of the earth, the text says. Let the earth bring them forth just as we saw with the plants. He didn't create them out of nothing. He created them out of the earth. The earth brought forth the plants. So also, the earth brought forth these animals. That means that God, by a miracle of creation, forged together the tiny organic molecules there in the earth, linking them all together in an extremely rapid fashion so that cells began to form and, tissues of cells, and muscles, and skeletons, and brains, and fur, and skin, feet, hands, all of the intricacies and complexities of each individual animal in one day. The miracle of creation. The text tells us that God made, first of all, cattle. Cattle is a Hebrew word that refers to those animals which would later become domesticated. The cows, the bulls, the goats, the donkeys, the horses, the pigs. All of those animals, sheep. In the second place, the text mentions creeping things, the animals that creep upon the earth. That refers to all the animals that creep on the ground and in the trees. The lizards, the snakes, frogs, spiders, ants, and all the insects. And then in the third place, the text mentions the beasts of the field. By that, we are to understand all of the animals that would remain wild throughout the history of the world the lions and tigers, the bears, the elephants and giraffes, the mighty dinosaurs that lumbered through the earth, the beasts. By the way, that also includes chimpanzees, apes, monkeys. They too are among the beasts of the field that were created on the sixth day. These three realms of creatures, the fish and other sea creatures, the birds of the air, and the animals of the earth, Represent a higher order of living creatures that God made in the beginning. God had fashioned the whole kingdom of plants on the third day. Now, on the fifth and sixth days, He has fashioned the whole kingdom of animals. Notice how the animals are defined in the text. Verse 20 The moving creature that hath life. The moving creature that hath life. Verse 21. Every living creature that moveth, that moveth. This is a higher order of living things. The literal translation of those words is this. Living souls that move. Living souls. The plants were not living souls, but the animals are living souls that move. And that shows us that they are a higher Level of living beings. The plants are not living souls. They do not have life in the same sense that animals and humans do. Plants do not have blood. They do not have breath. They do not have the ability to move. Animals do. Animals have blood and breath and the ability to move. Animals are souls. But animals are not souls in the same sense that human beings are. If you read on in the scriptures, for example, in Leviticus 17, 11 through 14, you find that the soul of the animal is in its blood. The soul of the animal is a physical, material soul that no longer exists when the animal dies. Nevertheless, the animal has a soul, the scripture says. It is a living, breathing, moving, soulish creature. Obviously... Animals are higher than plants, but animals are lower than human beings. Animals do not have a spiritual soul as we do. That's not the idea of the word in the text. Man also has a soul, but man's soul is not material or physical, but spiritual. And as we saw in the first sermon, when Christians die, our souls go to heaven Our souls live on and go to be with Christ. Humans are not animals. Humans are not the descendants of the apes. Humans are not cousins of the chimpanzees. Apes, monkeys, and chimpanzees are beasts of the field. As we will see next time, Lord willing, man was created in God's image and likeness as a physical and spiritual, a rational and moral creature. We should notice, too, that God created the plants to be food for the animals. As we saw in our scripture reading, before the fall, all of the animals were herbivores. All of them. Even the animals with sharp teeth and claws. Even the big dinosaurs that appeared to have become flesh-eating. And the lions, the bears, the tigers. They were all herbivores before the The flood, that's what the text clearly says in verse 30. To every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, I have given the green herb for meat. And it was so. Part of the mystery of Christian science is to try to explain how it can be that some of these animals have such sharp teeth and claws. And you can find answers to those questions too in Christian literature. God created the plants as food for the animals and for man. On that very day when the animals sprang into existence, the fish, the birds, the beasts immediately began to eat the algae in the oceans, the grass in the fields, the fruits, nuts, and berries on the trees. And when we say that, That fact does not imply that there was death before the fall as some Christian evolutionists, to use an oxymoron, try to claim. They, They would say that our view of creationism implies that there was death before the fall after all because the animals were eating the plants before the fall and doesn't that mean that the plants were dying? Well then we have to remember a few things. First of all, God created the plants for the purpose of being food. That was God's original purpose and intention. Secondly, we should notice, as we have seen, the plants are a lower order of life than the animals, and much lower than man. Animals are not living souls. They don't have life in that sense. And then in the third place, we should notice, that the animals in that perfect, original, harmonious world didn't devour and chomp up the plants and destroy them, but the animals ate parts of the plants. They ate some of the leaves and the grass and the, the fruits and the nuts in such a way that it preserved the life of those plants and they were able to continue to grow and to flourish. It did not kill the plants. Now, we have to consider something else in the text that's very important. When God created the fish, the birds, and the beasts, we are told that he commanded them in verse 22, after blessing them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let fowl multiply in the earth. We might call this the introduction of a law of nature. Scientists love to speak about the laws of nature. Unbelieving scientists do not know where those laws of nature came from, nor do they make any attempt to explain that. They do not know. To them, it seems the laws of nature must have just always existed, and we don't know why they exist. We do know why they exist, because God, whose laws they are, set them in motion in the beginning. This is the origination of a law in nature. What law? It's the law that all animals have an instinct to reproduce. Why do they have that instinct? Why do they have that ability? Where did they get it? How did it come about? As you know, the evolutionist says that came about by chance, utterly and completely by chance, which, as we have seen, is not possible. Scripture tells us how that came about. God gave them the ability to reproduce. That's verse 22. God blessed them. God blessed them. That means God blessed them with the ability to reproduce. He gave them that power. And then secondly, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish, fill the waters and let fowl multiply in the earth. God was speaking a law to the animals. Now when we think of laws, we ordinarily think of human laws. And in the human society, when God speaks laws to us as rational moral creatures, we are called to obey those laws of our own volition. Animals can't do that. They're not rational moral creatures. So why is God speaking to them? Why is God telling them, be fruitful and multiply? They can't understand that. Oh, but they can. The plants and the animals understand when God speaks to them. They hear the law of their maker. And hearing that law, they can do nothing otherwise than obey. That's why animals have this instinct, as we call it, to reproduce. Because they know the commandment of their creator and they obey it. But we must also notice, God commanded them to reproduce after their kind. We saw that again in regard to the plants as well. Verse 11, let the earth bring forth grass and herb yielding seed and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. Verse 12, seed after his kind, after his kind. In our text, that phrase appears 7 times. Do you think God is emphasizing that to us? 7 times the text says after their kind. Now, sometimes an illustration is used. I found it in one of the books that I have in my study this past week. An illustration to show the difference between evolutionism and creationism. And it's an illustration that uses a tree. The evolution theory believes that all of the animals and plants, came from an original one-celled organism. Let's call that the root of the tree. Then they picture it as if that one-celled organism became a multicelled organism in the oceans of the early Earth, and the multi-celled organisms evolved by chance into sponges and into worms in the bottom of the sea. And then the tree, as it were, began to grow, but it's still from the same root. And then evolution took place, and branches started to form off the tree from that original source, that one-celled organism. Eventually, new animals arrived. Insects began to evolve from that same source, and mammals and reptiles. They all come from the same root, they believe, the same one-celled organism Evolutionists believe, as we saw last time, that life began on Earth about 3.8 billion years ago, although they change on that. And they believe that it took a couple of billions of years after that from the one cell to grow and evolve into animals, so that animals began more recently, perhaps 800 million years ago only. And then they speak of, as I mentioned, the sponges as the first animals, and then worms, insects, amphibians, as they begin to crawl out of the sea onto the land. And then they evolved into reptiles. But now here's this tree, this evolutionary tree. And the branches are starting to go this way and that way, and up, and to spread out. But it all comes from the same original cell, so they believe. One cell, randomly, by chance, by mutations in the gene, in the DNA, which is all by chance, by natural selection and survival of the fittest. These various branches of the different species began to form until now we have the thousands of species we see today. Part of that theory is the belief that reptiles evolved into birds. Dinosaurs, they believe are reptiles, and they believe literally that dinosaurs evolved into birds. Birds come from the dinosaurs. Birds come from the reptiles, they believe. Now, how did that happen? Well, they don't really know. But they imagine that these reptiles began to climb up the trees and began to jump off the trees. And as they were jumping over millions of years, eventually their scales somehow turned into feathers. And somehow their arms with scales somehow merged into wings. And somehow they lost their teeth and developed beaks and developed those delicate little bird feet. And somehow they taught themselves, by chance, how to fly. And that is the utter folly of Darwinian evolutionism. That, I do not kid you, is what thousands and millions of people believe is how birds came into existence. Birds are the only creatures in the world that have feathers. They don't know how scales became feathers. But they think, somehow, through evolution, given millions of years, that's what happened. And so at the top of their evolutionary tree, then finally they have the mammals, and there's a line, a branch of mammals, and those branch off into apes and chimpanzees, and at the top there are human beings. We evolved, they say, from dead molecules that spontaneously or through millions of years became alive and evolved by chance. The illustration that's used of the creationist view is not of a single tree, but of an orchard of trees. We are to think of the creation of animals as an orchard, not a single tree, In the beginning, God created a whole orchard of trees, and each of those trees is a separate kind of animal. Each is a distinct tree. It never becomes one of the other trees, but it's separate, distinct, and it has its own growth and its own history of development. As you can see in trees in an orchard, they do grow up and they do branch forth. And that explains, too, why we see such a vast variety of species in the world today. They don't all come from one original cell. They come from a variety of different kinds. Each animal was reproducing over thousands, not millions, of years from its original kind until the vast variety of species came into existence. There is natural selection But when natural selection takes place, survival of the fittest, there is no increase in the genetic information of that animal, but only a decrease. How could there be an increase in genetic information? By chance? Only there is a decrease. So that animals do change, they do mutate, they do develop, they do adapt. That's why we see so many different kinds of dogs and so many different types and varieties of cats. Chickens. Just think of any kind of animal. There are many, many varieties and species of that animal, and yet they are tightly bound within their kind, and one kind never becomes another kind. (coughs) Reptiles did not become birds. There were reptiles at the beginning. There were birds. There were fish. They were each in their distinct sphere and bound by their distinct kind. And isn't that exactly what we observe in the world today? Darwinian evolutionism does not explain the world that we see today. They claim that if you don't accept this theory of evolution, then you are not a genuine scientist. And you cannot really do science. I would argue just the opposite is true. They are so bound to their theory of evolution, which, by the way, is rooted in their belief of materialism, they don't believe there is any spiritual reality at all And we have to explain everything from what we can see. That's their more basic belief. Not evolutionism, materialism. And if they start with that belief, then they have no choice. They have to come up with an explanation. And Darwin is the best that they could come up with. But it does not explain what we observe. Science is evaluating what we can see and observe in the world. Faith looks upon things not seen. What do we observe in the world? If evolutionism is true, Charles Darwin himself said we should expect to see many strange looking animals in transition from one kind into another kind. Do we see any animals that seem to be transitioning from reptile into bird? Do we see any animals transitioning from chimpanzee into human? We don't. Well, what about the fossil record? Darwin thought in the 1800s that when archaeology and geology have developed and we're able to see many more of the fossils in the earth, then it should become plain that there were indeed such transitional missing links between the various kinds. They never found them. We're now in the 21st century, and they only lay claim to a few scattered fossils here and there, but they do not have what they expected, this vast array of missing links in the fossil record. It's just not there. Charles Darwin knew that himself, and already in his book on the origin of species, he pointed out, we have to explain this missing link in the fossils. So he simply attributed it to the imperfection of the fossil record. The fossil record is not imperfect. It just doesn't fit with his theory. The fossil record actually harmonizes with the creationist belief. That should be an encouragement to us. It's a great encouragement to me. We live in a world that is saturated with the theory of evolution, and it affects all of life. It affects marriage. It affects family. It affects the moral life. People believe that they are animals, developed from animals, not a higher creature from the animals. And they live accordingly, like animals, rather than like human beings. It should be an encouragement to us as Christians to see our Christian faith resting on the scriptures, makes perfect sense. Why did God create these animals? And here we ought to see, once again, how God's work of creation points ultimately to his own glory in the work of salvation in Christ Once again, we read in the text that God saw that these animals were good. Verse 21 and verse 25, he saw that it was good. And in verse 31, he saw that it was very good. The animals were perfect in God's eyes, perfect. There were no eggs there or infants, but perfect, fully formed animals. Exactly what God had designed in his mind he constructed by the power of his word. And the plan of God with the animals was in the first place to delight in them for the glory of his name. Revelation 4, verse 11, at the end of the Bible, in the last book of the Bible, we read these words, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things And for thy pleasure they are and were created. God created the animals too for his own pleasure. God takes delight in his creatures. And he takes pleasure in the animals, the fish, the birds, the land animals, because they manifest his handiwork. They manifest by their complexity by their well-ordered systems, by their beauty, by their grace of motion. God delights in watching the eagle soaring through the air and the whale gliding through the great blue sea. God loves to watch the behemoth lumbering along and moving his tail like a cedar, Job 40, verse 17. The Leviathan blowing smoke from his nostrils, Job 41, verse 20. God delights in the birds as they sing in the springtime, the pride of lions marching through the savanna. God delights in watching the ants hard at work in the summer, storing up for the fall, and the schools of fish dancing through the waters. God loves his world. He delights in all his creatures. Psalm 148, verse 10 Shows us that all of the animals give praise to God beasts and all cattle, creeping things, and flying fowl. God delights in them because they manifest his handiwork. And God wants us to delight in them too as manifestations of his handiwork. God created man above the animals, but he created the plants below the animals. God's original plan wasn't to give the animals to us to eat. He would not do that until after the flood, after the fall, after death had entered the world. Then he would give them to us as meat. But in the original creation, God created man in his image to have dominion over all the animals. We read that in verse 26. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, the cattle of the earth, and every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, not just the cows or the pigs or the sheep, but all the animals. Man was to have dominion over those animals as the image of God, reflecting God's lordship over all creation by having lordship over these animals. And just as God delights in them, God would have us to delight in them as well. That when we behold these creatures, we stand amazed, not just at the creature, as the unbelieving naturalist who gets in their scuba gear and dives down into the sea and sees the beautiful, bright-colored schools of fish and attributes it to chance. But God would have us to see these animals as his handiwork, and to give praise to him every time we are filled with wonder. Furthermore, God had a plan with the animals with regard to the world post-fall. The fall of man into sin was not a mistake. God intended it from the beginning. God intended that when man fell into sin and death entered the world, death would also pass upon the animals. They too, as living souls, would come under the curse of man. But God also intended to use those very animals to bring death on man. Death can come in many different ways, but God determined to use the animal kingdom against mankind as judgments to bring death. Just think of the plagues that he sent on Egypt Frogs that came out of the river, the locusts that destroyed the fields of the Egyptians who refused to let his people go, the lice and the flies that disturbed their life. Think of the venomous snakes in the wilderness that bit the children of Israel when they murmured against God. Think of the lions in the den in Babylon from which God saved Daniel, but to whom he fed Daniel's enemies. God uses the animals to bring death upon mankind. Think of those mother bears that God raised up to destroy the young men who mocked the prophet Elisha. God also uses the animals to chasten his own people. Sometimes God's own people are harmed by animals. But God can even use animals for the good of his people, as we have seen, and he does. Think of the great fish that swallowed Jonah in the sea. But we have to see that God's plan with the animals goes much higher than that. As we said when we were singing psalms earlier, it's amazing how many animals are symbolic of higher spiritual realities. The serpent, which points to the devil as a great red dragon. The sheep, that graze the fields and foolishly wander and go astray, that point to us as God's sinful people who wander from him. And then we should fasten our attention on the lamb. God's plan with animals centers on the lamb, doesn't it? And after the fall of man into sin, God was the first one to kill an animal. Adam and Eve tried to clothe themselves in fig leaves by their own works, but God slaughtered an animal. And he took the skins of that animal and wrapped it around them as clothing, as a sign, pointing forward to the fact that he would send a Savior to shed his blood for them and clothe them in his own righteousness. Cain and Abel, Cain brought the fruits of the ground, but Abel brought the firstling of his flock, slaughtering it, shedding its blood, and offering it up as a sacrifice to God, putting his faith in the coming of a perfect Savior. Throughout the whole Old Testament, God commanded the Israelites, and they brought thousands and thousands of sheep and cattle and goats and turtle doves and pigeons to the altar, and the priests slaughtered them, shedding their blood one after another after another, as sacrifices to God, as a sign. Only through the shedding of blood can there be salvation. But none of those animals was able to satisfy the justice of God until Jesus came. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb without spot or blemish, the true Savior, who gave his life on the cross and shed his own blood. And that wasn't the end of the story. Rising from the dead and ascending into heaven, that Lamb of God became the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In Revelation 4, he roars from the right hand of God, having all power and authority over the whole kingdom of animals and man and the whole universe. And he will come again when a beast rises up in the earth. A beast that doesn't look like any of the natural animals God made in the beginning, but rather a monstrosity with many heads and many horns, a symbol of the man of sin. But when he rises, the lion will return, riding on a white horse, symbolizing victory and power and purity. Will destroy that beast with the breath of his mouth. You see how all the animals point us ultimately to God's work of salvation for the greatest glory of his name. Points us even farther. When the lamb and the lion returns, he will bring about a new creation. And in that new creation, Isaiah says, the lamb and the lion will lay down together the leopard and the baby goat the child by the hole of the poisonous snake and there will be no more violence and no more destruction in all my holy mountain and knowing that we can behold the birds of the air and not worry about tomorrow because we know all is well amen father in heaven we praise and marvel To thee, at thy wondrous creative works, thou art truly great, glorious, in all the works of thy hands. We thank thee for this lesson this afternoon from the book of Genesis, which is an encouragement to us as we live in a world of great unbelief. We pray thou wilt strengthen our faith, that as we look back to the origin of these things, and look forward to the future of all things, our hearts may be thrilled with joy and find comfort and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name.